That's both the hosts. Everything's covered. Yay. This is our show about uh, Kansas City, the Midwest, politics, cool people doing cool things. Being married, doing married things. Doing married things. <laughs> what kind of married things have we been doing lately? I don't know. We, oh, we went to St. Louis and we saw a Beck, which was great. That's not a Kansas City thing, though, but it's a married thing. <laughs> it is a Midwestern thing. I think it yes. fits within the purview of yeah. the show. Uh, and also, just a real delight of timing because it meant we could miss the Democratic debates that night. Oh, we were free, but then we had our phones, so we were just checking Twitter between bands to be like, can you believe what they're saying now? Uh, one of our producers is here. Hello, Kit Kat. Hello, Kit Kat. That's for uh, our Goodbye. Oh. Oh, he he loves a good woman's shoe, and uh, that brings us to our, our guest today. Uh, today we are joined by... My name is Rachel McCarthy-James, and I do have particularly good-smelling shoes. <laughs> My goodness, it's really just... This is not interesting for anyone listening, but Bernstein is standing on his hind legs to smell Rachel's shoe, and it is the cutest thing I've ever seen. Ever? Ever. You've seen me before, right? I'm sorry, baby. This oh. is cuter. I've seen your kittens before, too, I have to say. This is pretty cute, but that was cuter. Kittens are always cuter. Rachel, We're who are you and what do you do? Great start. Uh, I am a writer. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, which is about an hour or so away. And I, in 2017, I published a book with my dad, uh, Baseball's Bill James, uh, called The Man from the Train, which is about a series of axe murders from about 100 years ago. A little more than that now. Um, so and people from sports will know Bill James yes. as the inventor of sabernomics? Sabermetrics, yes. Sabermetrics. I love sabernomics, though. Sabernomics. I'm going to pass that Please one tell on him to about him. that one. Yes. Yeah, basically, he's the guy that invented Moneyball. Yes. Uh, so if you've yep. seen the film Moneyball, uh, he is a journalist that, that does a lot of work in that. And He's in Moneyball. He's in Moneyball. He's in Moneyball. He's in Moneyball. Is your dad he, <laughs> he is not Brad Pitt. No, he is not. He's I think not. you're misremembering who did the Moneyball in that movie. <laughs> I definitely am. Okay. It's actually his real face up there for like... 15 seconds or whatever Fantastic. and they talk about him a few times and actually that was uh we went to see that on my honeymoon and my <laughs> husband fell asleep in the middle of it so i had to wake him up a few times like they're talking about your new father-in-law <laughs> and what now. he does is exciting yes yes sabernomics sabernomics <laughs> oh it sounds like it should be the the math of swords the mat. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. Even though I'm all about axes these days. So, so tell me, axonomics. Uh, <laughs> so tell me about Muller. Uh, Paul Muller. We're ne never sure how to pronounce it. Mueller, Muller. It kind of varies from place to place. So. Um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about how I came on that this Great. project. Um, so I was about, I lived in Roanoke, Virginia at the time. And my dad sent me, in May 2012, he sent me the first chapter of this called The Bloody Penny, which is about a place called uh, Hurley, Virginia, a tiny little town about an hour away from Roanoke. So he sent it to me, and it was like 30 pages. And I was like, Dad, why are you sending this to me? I, uh, you know... I'm not that engaged in your uh, your your pursuits. <laughs> um, and then uh, right as I was about to move a few months later, uh, he was like, I need a research assistant for this book. Uh, and my mom was like, why don't you hire Rachel? So he sent me this and he did a little test first. And he was like, okay, so... I've sent you this first one, which doesn't mention Mueller or Valeska or You're, anything like for, that. For, for the people that are listening yes. to the audio right now, they just keep hearing the book being flipped through the pages. <laughs> like you're, you, you have such a nervous energy, but I think it's good for sound. <laughs> 
There you go. There you go. The That's it. Experience. It's a book. It's real. <laughs> uh, yes. You can find it at any bookstore. So uh, he sent me this. Didn't tell me any of the context about it. We didn't even know about Mueller at that point. Um, and he said, okay, so read this and see if you can find anything else. And fortunately, if you uh, Google axe murders, Valeska is what comes up immediately. So I looked at it, looked at this, and saw the similarities and said, okay, well, obviously... It's about the Valeska Axe murders, which were a famous unsolved crime that happened in uh, June 1912. And that's eight people, right, in one night? Eight people in one night, which was not his highest uh, one-night kill count, but it was one of the highest. And this, um, so it was an unexplained murder, prominent family in town, um, and half the town was convinced that his business rival, whom I believe the uh, victim J.B. Moore was having an affair with his wife. People thought that he murdered J.B. Moore and his wife and their children and then two little neighbor children who happened to be staying there, which is really intense. Um, But most people believed that it was unsolved. Nobody knew who did it. They knew that there were a few other crimes around the same time Mm -hmm. um, that were similar and probably by the same person. But nobody knew who it was. It and was this an is happening mystery. sort of uh, within the, the couple of years of basically Jack the Ripper. But uh, yeah, uh, it, these are aligning in such a way that like the concept of a transient serial killer or even a serial killer didn't exist. So people all over the country were having these similar axe murders that fit a time frame. But it would never occur to somebody that it wasn't somebody that like knew the victims or had yeah. like a reason to kill them. <laughs> well, they didn't. He didn't have a reason. Yeah, the idea of a serial murderer was completely foreign to them. Occasionally, they would catch on, and uh, around the time of Valeska, they did know that somebody was going around the country killing families. He was called Billy the Axeman. Um, but in Valeska specifically, what turned it into legend um, was they pretty much disregarded that immediately. And the town was caught up for more than a decade in these different trials and factions that had split this town into two. Um, so that's what made it so long lasting. That feels like a the, play, that, like yeah. a, a weird R town where like everyone right. has to pick a side <laughs> in an axe murder. <laughs> Actually, um, there is a similar Iowa axe murder. Um, that a couple of people have suggested to me is related, but which I don't believe is, uh, which inspired a play called Trifles, which you might not have heard of. It's by Susan Glassbell. And I knew it because I used to be a tutor at a community college and we would get like 20 papers a year that were about trifles. So I already knew about it from that. Um, But there were a ton of axe murderers just in general in this period. It was an, an, the phrase dad uses is an aneurysm of axe murders. And it really was. um, Is it because everyone had access to axes and guns didn't work in that way yet? Guns were starting to work as part of the interesting thing. Guns were definitely starting to work. Um, You know, I looked at a lot of crimes, other crimes unrelated to this uh, through these decades that he was active, which is roughly 1898 to 1914. Um, And there were definitely a lot of gun murders, a lot of shootings. Um, But it's interesting because, you know, axes, and this is the subject of my next book, which is uh, um, about the history of axe murders. It's interesting Well, you've already done your research for book two, (laughs) which is kind of nice. I have not at all, but I know very well about, you know, writing about uh, very 
slightly on the edge of pulpy axe murders, which is good for convincing people to let me write more <laughs> about the general history of axes and axe murders and violence and whatnot. But what's interesting is, you know, axes are an ancient technology. There have always been axe murders. Um, but for some reason in the late 1800s, late 19th century, early 20th century, there really were just a lot of people who were using axes to murder people. There's the New Orleans Axeman, there's Lizzie Borden, obviously. Um, there's a bunch of other unsolved murders that we don't know about, uh, which I talk about, a few of which I talk about in the book. The New Orleans Axe murderer was mostly, as I believe, isn't it that he was murdering people that didn't appreciate jazz enough? <laughs> Wasn't that the... You know, I'm not sure. The thing that distinguishes him from Paul Mueller, our guy, is that Paul Mueller was really good at what he was doing. He was very... Um, efficient okay basically and it's uh basically if he entered your house you were going to be dead within about two minutes he was very quick he knew when to attack he knew when everybody was sleeping so basically you didn't wake up which is you know a small mercy um and whereas the axeman in new orleans you know a lot of people got away it was very messy um a lot of people survived so there were some differences there okay uh so yeah there were a lot of and it's partially because um this was a stage where uh deforesting america was a really big task uh when white people came over to colonize is the you know nicest right. possible term you can use for that um europe was very deforested after uh. centuries of civilization and building cities um whereas the forests of america were very thick and uh there was a lot to get through and you had to build roads and railroads and things like that which need a lot of wood plus they were plus you needed houses um wood for houses as well obviously uh so there was a lot of trees to chop down and a lot of um, basic household tasks that depended upon axes. So an axe was a common thing to just have around the house um, and just leave out in your yard, which is what he would do in a lot of these cases, is he would pick up an axe from their yard, their wood pile in their yard, or a neighbor's yard, uh -huh. use that, uh, kill them, and then drop the axe where it was. So he didn't carry his axe with him. He just picked it up when he saw it as he was going through these neighborhoods. This is such a weird version of like, well, because of colonialization, yeah. <laughs> everyone had to have axes. Yes. And uh, in, a, in a small way, in repayment for all of the native peoples that white people killed, white people had to deal with a lot of axe murders as yeah. a result. That's, <laughs> I uh, suppose so. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Uh, yeah. So. I, well, I've never thought of axe murders as coming from colonialization, so yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah, everything in America can be traced back to colonialization, mm -hmm. I think, in some ways. I'm so fascinated by the idea of, like, I mean, when I think of axe murderers, I think of, like, I don't, I'm wondering how graphic this is going to come out. Mm -hmm. Like, a very violent, like, hacking to bits sort of mm -hmm. crime. And so the idea that, like, he did it while people were sleeping. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just, I don't know. I'm so fascinated by, like, what the psychology of that is. Like, oh, boy. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is that he actually didn't hack in the way most people are thinking. Mm -hmm. He used the blunt end of the axe. Oh, wow. So instead of using the sharp end, which could, what we think is basically it might get stuck in the body and then be hard to pull out, whereas the blunt end of the axe, you could, you know, you aim it ahead, it's easy to bash go on to the next one bash go very quickly through the house and get it done 
I would um, never in a million of years have guessed that these were axe murders with the other side. The other of the side. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> one of the central things that I looked for. In fact, I would say that's one of the number one things I looked for in distinguishing um, an event that we think is related versus an event that we think is unrelated huh. is the back of the axe. So this jumps forward a little bit here and, and then we'll go back and fill yes. some of it in. But uh, ostensibly, you guys start with a single axe murder event and then the two of you meticulously research all these other events and at the end of the book, you've basically got 50-ish murders that you're positive are him and up to 100 that you think you can make a pretty good case for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you, you've uncovered the most successful serial killer in history more than 100 years later yeah. as a project with your dad, yes. which is like every part of this is is its own movie, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's not. Uh, it's been a definitely a wild ride, a lot of left turns. When I came on the case, and uh, it wasn't a single case really. So people had been looking at this. There's a lot of excellent. Um, there is an excellent documentary about this called Valeska Living with a Mystery that goes into it. Um, and a big starting point for us was a random research paper written by a woman in uh, Colorado who was doing an online master's degree at Emporia State University who just— Incredible. Yeah, I'm glad Emporia worked in here. Like, <laughs> I know. Isn't that funny? Um, and she— Our producer is trying to eat your book yeah, now. That's Okay. <laughs> Cats have been smelling, my cats have been smelling that as well. So he's lots of, lots of cat smells. Um, so, um, sorry to your producer or to your editor. Um, so. No, it's uh, Woodward and Bernstein. They're appreciating your journalism. <laughs> I'm sure of it. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so we were already working and this, this paper was kind of famous throughout the internet. It's on her random, like, here's all my Christmas cards. And also here's this paper I did about axe murder, which is really interesting. What? <laughs> she looked in, she got into it because, um, her grand, great grandmother had been axe murdered and they thought that her cousin who axe murdered her was also responsible for Valeska. And she looked into it and she said, well, he definitely killed my grandmother, but I don't think he did Valeska. So that's how she got into it. And uh. just did this really comprehensive essay about it that was really a good starting point because she lined up all of the different um, characteristics we were looking at. And so that was a really good starting point for us. Uh, then from there, I started looking for more. My dad hired me first just to look in like 1907, 1908, um, because he wasn't finding anything there. He didn't know yet that that was actually like a an empty period for him. We don't know what he was doing, if he was in jail or what, but he wasn't murdering then. Um, so I, I just moved to Lawrence. I wanted to, which is where I grew up, which is where my parents live. Um, I just moved back there with my husband and I needed a job. So I was like, why don't you let me continue looking earlier in the decade to see if I can string this out a little bit longer. And I started finding a lot of murders. Um, Pretty much as soon as I started looking into 1906, 1905, 1904, I was finding a ton of events. So we knew we were on to something. Um, but within a couple of months of me starting, I was looking into a related crime. And at the very end of um, this unrelated crime in Maine, um, there was a line about, this is surely the same fiend who killed the Newton family in Brookfield uh, two years ago. And I'm like, okay, I've got to look it up. And um, so I Google it. I go to this weird uh, history of the Massachusetts Police Department from 1600 to 1904. Um, I go look through that, trying to find out more information about this. And I get to a description of this, and it's hitting everything. 
back of the axe, family attacked while sleeping, uh, little girl, lamp left off the chin, ch uh, chimney left off the lamp, uh, windows covered, uh, door locked from the inside, etc. And I'm like, oh my God, this is clearly an event. And then at the end it says, uh, the person who committed this was Paul Mueller, the hired hand who was last seen headed for the train. And at that second, I was like, holy shit, did I just solve this? I didn't just solve this, did I? What, what happened? Is this for real? And also and, somebody solved this 100 years ago and no one right. put the pieces well, together. Well, but that was before he, but the thing is, when they wrote that, that was before he was killing everyone because he didn't start, like, there was like a two-year gap between the first murder and the next one we can find, and he didn't really get going until well after this, so after everyone had forgotten this, which was really smart. He was really good, he was really canny about how to avoid these local police departments, how to come in, kill a family, and be gone before anyone even knows it happened. Um, so anyway, I found that within a couple of months of coming on, and at that point we knew we had a real story with a beginning, middle, and end, even if it's told in reverse chronological order. <laughs> right. Um, so, so once we did that, we started going back and trying to fill in and figure out uh, how many more crimes there are, what the context is like, how much can we figure out about this. And that took about four years of research before we were done with it. It was a big task. And in total, like yeah. you've managed to find basically, I, I think by your, your own admission, something like maybe 500 words ever written about this guy's yeah. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we don't know. We don't know much about him at all. Um, you know, and 500 words is honestly is kind of a kind of a lot in the context of some of these cases where there'll just be a paragraph written about some right. of these families who died. And obviously those are the low information events where we're not totally sure if that's uh, that was related or not. But you would be surprised how little notice was taken of some of these incredibly gruesome, horrible, devastating events. Um, you know, you think that it's really shocking to see how quickly people forget these huge murders. We have this expectation um, that we're going to run in this true crime boom that we're in right, right now. There's this expectation you're going to run out of murders at some point. You <laughs> absolutely are not. There are so many forgotten murders, even happening, you know, even connected to famous people like um, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, servant axe murdered his family um, at their at his uh, farm home in Wisconsin. People have completely forgotten this event. Uh, it's Frank Lloyd Wright is a huge deal, but people have kind of, you know, there's a Wikipedia entry about it, but there's not like five podcasts about it. There's just a ton of different events that are completely fascinating, tell a huge story about the time and context in which they took place. And that's kind of one of the things we hope for with the book. And what we're seeing from the emails that we're getting, a lot of people are using this as a jumping off point to go and do more research into this. I really don't think this is going to be the last book written about this. Maybe not, and eventually, maybe not even the best book. Because, you know, <laughs> we did this all. I did this all in Lawrence, Kansas. I didn't do, we didn't basically do any trips to go research anything. Uh -huh. We just looked at old newspapers. People who live in, you know, Colorado Springs or uh, Brookfield or um, uh, the Panhandle of Florida can go and look for local archives that are going to have a lot more information and shed a lot more light on what happened to these families. You weren't getting into I microfiche in I local was not libraries into, and I, I did a little microfiche, but for the most part, no. I was, and that's, you know... 
It sounds impressive that I did this 100 years afterwards, but really it's just the technology catching up. Uh-huh. You couldn't have done this before without a searchable archive of small-town newspapers from across the country. That's the only way to really see this pattern playing out um, until he reached, well, as I said earlier, um, he did, they were, they knew that he was, they knew there was a serial killer, even though they didn't have the language for it right. at the time. But that's only when he was killing people like every other week. For most of this, <laughs> it was at least a couple of months, if not years, between events. Um, there would there, be, there's a period here where he did two families in the same night in Colorado. Yes, yeah. And then the next week in Kansas. Yep. Like, and then Valeska it, right after that. It's super, super It escalates intense. in the way it that escalates. you understand we have the language for now. But yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And I think my theory on that is he was 35 with his first event in 1898. This is 1911, 1912. He's 50. He knows he's nearing the end of his life. He knows people are getting into it. He's just in his fuck it stage where he's just <laughs> going out and killing as many people as he can without worrying quite as much about being caught. And it also reflects a larger trend in uh, who he chose to kill. So the first, like, 10 years, 1898 to 1906 or whatever, 1909, um, he was killing people in very, uh, who happened to be near trains in fairly rural areas. So people on farms, people who were isolated. And then he would set fire to the house afterwards in part to uh, destroy evidence, in part just because that was part of his thing. Right. Um, then after, once he gets to this intense part, he switches to... Um, houses in small towns. So houses with a lot of neighbors where they're going to find it immediately. Oh. So it's a lot more careless. Uh, but he also quit setting houses on fire, which tends to attract <laughs> less attention and gives him more time to get the hell out of Dodge. So, L- yeah. Literally Dodge. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, but, yeah. I know that we uh, won't run out of true crime. I, that used to be my fear, too. Like, we've gone through all the murders. Like, yeah. at some point, yeah. we're out... Uh, but uh, this week uh, on, uh, on film Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, we got to see some people that have seen the new film uh, Once oh, Upon a yeah. Time in Hollywood uh, who were very upset that the film does not explain all of the things about the Manson murders. And if they hadn't heard about it, they they it, it was They're one like of the we, we threw a, a Viking funeral for the concept of curiosity because it <laughs> used to be if I encountered something I didn't know about, then I would go read about it later. And then right. you knew about it. And also... Who doesn't know what the Manson? I know. So I have Who's so, going so, to see Tarantino and doesn't know what the Manson yeah. murders are, right? And even if you don't, like, it, it, it was the conversation I got into with a with a different friend. Is like, if you if you didn't know what they are at all, then you just thought that this was another fictional part of the movie. So you had to know just enough to know that it was a real thing, but not enough to know what it is, and then to be angry. It's a very particular sweet spot for being it's a really shit human bizarre. being. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we're not going to run out of true crime, but we can no. just keep telling these stories forever. Absolutely. There's a lot of, I mean, in these most famous ones, and that's part of what I was talking about earlier, is there's so many fascinating angles. I mean, there's a whole subsection here that's basically, you know, about race in America and this difficult period leading up to uh, the Red Summer of 1919. Um because black people were often blamed or even hung for yes, these crimes. Yes, they were lynched. Yeah, many in many cases were, well, not many, but a few of these cases were lynched. And in some cases, um, he targeted black families. He killed black families, and their murders were not taken as seriously by the police. And in one case, um, this 18-year-old girl, who's clearly just, like, having some mental health issues, uh, claimed that she was responsible for all of, for about 30 of these 
subset of murders. And she was convicted, even though everyone was kind of like, really? Did she really do this? I don't know. So they convicted her for one murder. She was in for 10 years. Her name's Clementine Barnabet. And I would just love to see somebody really dig in on her. I might return to it later in my career because it's just a fascinating case in which, um, you know, about... I think it was 10 black families were killed in uh, 1910 and 1911 in western Louisiana and eastern Texas. And a couple of them are the man from the train. Um, One of them is very close to his typical profile, but a lot of them are not related at all. We can tell because it's the wrong side of the axe. There's a bunch of attention-seeking stuff that um, the killer did that he wouldn't do. Uh, it's the wrong time of day, et cetera. Um, and I have no idea who was committing these murders. And I'm, I don't believe it was Clementine. I don't believe most of them were our guy. And uh, I just have no idea. I'd love to see someone else take up So that it might mantle. be some of the first cases of like copycat stuff where like racists yeah. were able to be like, oh, we could just do yeah. that and they'll think it's that same exactly. guy. Oh, shit. That's I don't know terrible. if it was necessarily about him because he didn't have a national profile yet but i think that they saw the opportunity to he they saw that black families were terrified right and they took the opportunity to turn that into not just a community in pain but took the opportunity to terrorize that community and to um you know really fuck with their lives and it was pretty horrific and, and you still see that today um there were a few black churches that were right. set on fire that's the same area that's the same um area of louisiana so you see how these you know these tensions have erupted into violence again and again throughout our history and we're still not really dealing with them and you have sort of an interesting like there's an interesting epilogue to his story which is that you think that maybe he went back to Germany yeah. at the end of his life because Hinter there's Heifetz. then a series of axe murders in Germany. There's just the one very famous axe murder that we think might be connected, Hinterkaifeck. Um, and I'm, we're, neither of us speak German, so right. we haven't looked at it as closely as we have everything else in here. But I love it's that you have of, a 400-page book and you're like, this is just the limitations we had working from really Lords. Is. If only it we really could have. <laughs> uh, you know, we're doing the work of connecting across a broad spectrum. Um, but that's, except for Valeska, we don't get super, super, super in-depth. Um, and I'm hoping that, especially with some of these, I'd love to see more on the Newtons, uh, the Cassaways, who were one of the families I was just talking about that was committed by him. Fascinating story of this um, mixed-race family, uh, Louis Cassaway was such a, he was such a active member of the community. He was uh, in the local Republican Party when Republican parties were about anti-racism mm-hmm. instead of embracing racism. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a local school janitor. He's one of the most people I found who's the most, whose life was the most chronicled mm-hmm. in the paper before his death. Um So he was really leading this incredible life, making progress for his community. And then it was cut short so suddenly. And we've, but because he was such a beloved member of the community, we've got a wealth of detail about that. And I believe that there's even more detail to be found if you were to live in San Antonio, which is where he lived. So if you're listening in San Antonio, go look up the Cassaways, please. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any questions about the world of true crime? (laughs) I mean, a million. <laughs> um, how, far lo- how far along are you in your next book? I am just writing the sample chapter now. Can't talk a ton mm-hmm. about it yet. Um, 
It's definitely going to be... Because it might be a couple of years and you don't want somebody else to run away with it. Exactly, yes. exactly. Well, it's going to be a huge... It's going to be another five years before this one is done. I don't know. I've got another idea that I'm working on that's in the true crime area, but not mm. so murdery. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I would love to talk about it so much because I've spent the last six months just working on this uh, sample chapter. But unfortunately, my agent has told me I'm not allowed to. So, oh. <laughs> But hopefully, after I get my book deal, maybe I can come back and talk more about it. Nice. <laughs> What is it like to spend just like four years and I guess now further years down the yeah. line just Seven researching years. axe murder? Like it oh, seems boy. like it's a lot. <laughs> well, um, you know, this was it was uh, it was pretty grueling. The first few months I was just doing this pretty much full time uh, and I started having trouble sleeping and I was like, I can't deal with this. I can't be researching murders after dark anymore. Um, so you have I, to leave your work at work. Exactly. Five exactly. o'clock every day. Uh, exactly. You know, my dad and I are very similar people. We have a lot of similar flaws and he's taught me a lot of bad work habits. And one of them is just work all the time whenever you feel like working and then don't work for a while. But I had to set, like, not follow his example and not send him, respond to his 3 a.m. emails at 3 a.m. about axe murder. Um, so what I did was... These I are would... all things that seem to resonate in this household. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, and I still do that, and it's a little different now. Anyway, um, so I would work on it in the morning, and then in the afternoon, I would go work at the Boys and Girls Club at my old elementary school, which is right down the street. So that would be a kind of a nice counterweight, because I was reading about child murders all morning and then going and playing with the children who are alive right now. Uh, it doesn't sound like it helps that much. Like that seems like a, uh, no, it was good. Cause it was, you know, getting out of the house, right. uh, getting some exercise, um, getting some separation from it because sure. it's, you know, dad's always working on a million different things. Well, I was working on this. I was pretty much just working on this, just researching and looking at newspaper after newspaper after newspaper. So I had to, I had to I had to change it up a little bit and make sure I wasn't doing nothing but this because that would have been <laughs> very grim. It's it's so funny though because like so many people use true crime as like a way to wind down, We're like relaxation. a way to set, exactly. Yeah, I know, I she know. was listening to my favorite murder while while making our wedding cake. <laughs> yeah, so like <laughs> yeah, it's baked into I, our relationship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I ju I just started uh, with a new therapist actually, and she was asking me like, so what do you do to decompress from work? And I was like, I listen to a lot of murder stuff actually, and she said that is very common yes. which i knew but it's nice to have validation <laughs> yeah from it's an interesting um it's an interesting pressure release is kind of it's kind of like imagining the worst thing that could happen mm -hmm. to comfort yourself that it's not that bad yeah that it always could be worse <laughs> at least you're probably not getting murdered tonight probably, probably not, tonight. not. <laughs> you never know but probably not and that's one thing that will comfort me a little bit. I'm like, well, you know what? If I ever get mur murdered, I know there will be some podcasts about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> solving a murder and then getting murdered. Yeah. Somebody book. will listen to this as research for your murder. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. <laughs> Hi, future scholars. <laughs> <laughs> Please solve it. Please don't. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll haunt, have to haunt this house. I'm just going to put that out there. If any of us are murdered, somewhat. Please solve yes, it. Please. The future <laughs> people <laughs> listening to this. Oh, Please God. solve my murder is <laughs> a good God. shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy oh boy uh what what else what were some of the weirdest parts of the uh the, the story that you were just like i can't believe that we're going down this road oh boy, let me think for a second um i have a million from oh 
So you're asking me to go into my mental archives here, <laughs> right. which have been pushed out by other weird stuff at this point. Uh, oh, one of the weirdest ones uh, was this in um, Cottonwood, Alabama, uh, the Christmas family. Uh, there was a bizarre, this is one of our lower information events that we're less sure about. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to read to you this newspaper piece that we print in there. Okay. Uh, following the, the arrest yesterday of Will Christmas, a son, and Walter Holland, a son-in-law, in connection with the triple murder of the Christmas family, new and sensational developments were brought to light today through the medium and detective, his assistant, a ventriloquist, a superstitious black man and the black man's mule. So it's you got to walk me through everything that you just said. Incredibly bizarre. So there is this biblical story about how um, a mule talks to a man and gives him some revelation. And I guess this is kind of what that's playing off of. Um, okay, so. Private detectives at the time were basically spies. They weren't like, um, they didn't have any kind of respectability. Part A big part of this book is about how, you know, the police force is plenty fucked up now. A uh-huh. hundred years ago, it was not only fucked up, they had no idea what the hell they were doing. There were no procedures. They had no, <laughs> like, training whatsoever. It right. was just whoever wanted to be nosy and have authority, which is a bad combination, um, could become a cop or a private detective who would often just, like, look around, root around, not really solve anything, but take all of the reward money. Okay. Um, so, anyway, uh, Detective Franklin, uh, he pretended to be an escaped criminal in Georgia, uh, and he hired a black man to bring him his meals out in the woods. And this man had a mule. Um, and so, according to this detective... He began to believe that this guy who was bringing him his food knew something about the case but wouldn't tell him anything about it. Um, So he hid out in the woods where this guy was with his mule, threw his voice and pretended to be the mule talking to this man and talked him into confessing what he knew about the murders by throwing his voice as a mule. Uh, I think this case is bullshit. I think (laughs) it, it doesn't make any sense. It's somebody... Pulling a fast one, but there is an amusing, uh, uh, well, not, there's an interesting cartoon that depicts this scene. It's one of our few illustrations. That's one thing I was frustrated with with the book is that there's not a lot of illustrations and they could use some maps. It's really bizarre. So that would be one of yeah, the really uh... weird stories. Yeah, none of that tracks. That's, yeah, uh... <laughs> exactly. And we look at it now and we're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Who would fall for that? Right. And, well, racism makes people stupid. So, you right. know, that makes sense. Another weird one um, would be the case of Reverend Kelly, who was one of the people who uh, was accused of the crime. And I believe he kind of confessed. This guy was a fucking creep. He would set ad- <laughs> he would set ads in the newspaper that was like, please, I would like someone to come and do my typing in the nude. Young girls only, please. Like pre- oh, he's Craigslist. one of, one of those uh, topless yeah. cleaner services. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, so there were a lot of weird stories in here. I mean, uh, and just learning about the little quirks of, uh, you know, railroad life and... Um, farm life in this era was really interesting to me and just the gap in technology that was one thing that i hadn't realized before this and one thing that i think dad does a really good job of elucidating in this book is um 
how quickly technology was developing at this stage, uh, where, you know, in 1900, nobody had cars. In 1910, people did indeed have cars. Same deal with telephones. Pretty much no one had it in 1900, but by 1910, it was a pretty common thing to experience. Information could now outpace exactly. a guy jumping on a railroad. Exa exactly, exactly. Um, and it was also, that's reflected in the development of newspapers. You know, beforehand, you would, um, it was really sketchy to try and, circulate stories through AP or whatever, but by 1910, those services were much more uh, standardized, much better at getting the facts right and not uh, misprinting stuff or um, just straight, you know, not sharing the news when it needed to be shared. So, yeah. It seems like in a book about axe murders, you, you've written about a much more, the, the much darker thing is like the, what America was at this point. Yeah. Like there's so much worse and like, while while there was an axe murder, it seems like everyone around all of these things is actually also equally shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's America, though. Anytime you start learning about its history, you start learning about all the fucked up shit we were doing at right. the time. How we haven't really addressed any of those things at all. So, yeah. Boy, this was fun. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it must be fun at parties. Like, uh, <laughs> I did have get some uh, get some uh, ammunition out of this while it was in progress because people wouldn't believe me. They'd be like, "This is made up. You're not. This isn't real." <laughs> right. I'm like, "No, no, it's real. I'm publishing it with Scribner." Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's been an interesting journey for sure. Not one that I expected to take. You know, Dad was always obsessed with true crime, and I've always enjoyed true crime. Mm -hmm. I love In Cold Blood. That's one of my favorite books. Um, and I've enjoyed many as Helter Skelter is a great book. Um, but I'd never been as into it. Dad's basically obsessed with two things, murder and baseball. And he always, <laughs> if has only been. one day the two could cross. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm surprised he hasn't written a book just about murder and baseball. Um, so I always, it was interesting to collaborate with him on this. Uh, you know, I was, when I was coming off this, I'd been living in Virginia for eight years, so I hadn't spent that much time with my dad during that time. Uh, so it was really good to uh, connect over this and kind of find this professional rapport mm -hmm. that I don't think a lot of people get to have with their parents. So that what, was me. What is, because yeah. it, it is... Near the top of my list of fears. What is it like to work professionally with your father? It went a is, lot. Do you have any tips or tricks for that? <laughs> it went a lot better than, honestly, <laughs> I thought it would at the beginning. Um, I was, you know, worried because my dad's a really, really, can be a really prickly guy. You guys have seen his Twitter. It's fucking nuts. Uh, sorry, Dad. Um, he won't oh, be I listening think, to this. I think he knows. And you've mentioned before <laughs> yeah. that, like, your dad's uh, online following is gigantic, but that, like, he is also... <laughs> A boomer with access to, yes, to social media and doesn't always know what he's doing. And you have to sometimes argue with him in the public sphere about... Uh... I mean, a couple of times he's had really stupid opinions. And he's had less stupid opinions and or shared them less in the last <laughs> six months since I finally was like, you got to stop this. Can't do this anymore. Uh, it was funny. You uh, saw that tweet. He tweeted this weird thing about... Um, about if everyone had bed bugs, no one would care about bed bugs. Which is, I don't understand at all. The bed bugs are still going to bite you. Yeah, you, hot you, You're still going to bite you. And your response was, sounds like your trip's going well. Like, <laughs> just... And he immediately, and I hope if you're, uh, this won't air for a little while. Right. Yet. Okay, so uh, he 
te- he uh, DM'd me and he was like, you know, you really shouldn't, which is, you really shouldn't mention when you're out on a trip, someone will come and steal from your house because they know you're out on a trip, which is such a boomer dad thing to right. say, <laughs> this belief that everybody's going to come and come for your stuff. But anyway, back if, to your- If someone decides to bling ring Bill James, exactly. you know what, it's- <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see them try. Um <laughs> Don't know what they would get out of it. Uh, I guess he does have some World Series rings now, but they're not going to find it at the house. Anyway, <laughs> if you're looking to, if you're, if you're reading this to read up on, uh, <laughs> to figure out how to steal from me, well, don't. There's not a lot to steal. Um, anyway, back to your question about uh, working with him. Yeah, it actually went really well. He can be really prickly. Um, but one thing is he's always kind of seen me as his mini-me a little bit. Hmm. I look like him. I have a lot of his virtues and a lot of his flaws. Uh, I'm the oldest child. I'm the only writer. So um, I think it was kind of natural in that sense for us to eventually uh, work together. And I really have to say, you know, regardless of family connections, if you hire someone as a research assistant and they make a big research discovery, there's a temptation to just take that and be thank you in the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was never a thing. He would never have done that to me. As soon as I found this, he was like, all right, well, this is our book that we're going to write together. You're going right. to be on the cover uh, mm-hmm. and basically launch my career. Thanks, nepotism. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so it was... You cracked a murder yeah. from 100 years <laughs> ago. True. I don't think it qualifies as nepotism. Well, I mean, but would I have gotten the chance to crack a murder from 100 years ago if I wasn't somebody's right. daughter? No, I wouldn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, Yes, it's my accomplishment, and I'm not going to pretend it's, uh, you know, just that. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge, especially in the writing world, um, where so much of this is about who is whose parents, who's got connections. If I, you know, now that I've got a little bit of success, I've got to mention, you know, I'm here in part, in large part, because my dad's a successful Mm -hmm. writer. It didn't just happen by my own hard work bootstraps, et cetera. So, you, you know, yeah. I just feel, you know, talking about feminism, I always am thinking about my privilege, whether it's white privilege, class privilege, whatever. And it's important for me to talk about that class privilege and the, just the privilege of connections mm-hmm. and that. Um, you know, I'm very proud of what I've done here. I'm very proud of this book, uh, proud of my, you know, discovery here. But at the same time, you know. I'm standing on somebody else's 30-year career, not my own 30-year Yeah, career. you made the most out of an opportunity. Exactly, But to exactly. ignore the fact that you were given this opportunity. Exactly. Through, through your father. Exactly, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. You have any last questions here? No. Okay, no. then uh, we, uh, we wrap up the episodes usually by uh, everyone gives a pop culture recommendation, oh, uh, something you've watched or read lately uh, or, uh, or something that's always mattered to you, uh, just uh, something fun to uh to end on uh i'd like to recommend there's a book called the man from the train Um, (laughs) you took mine oh really uh there is a film on amazon prime right now called serenity it is not the space movie it is a movie called serenity don't read anything just go watch it viv showed it to me the other night she knew some of the twisty things and just spent the whole movie watching me waiting for me to lose my shit, and indeed I did. <laughs> we, we were watching very different movies if you've read spoilery reviews, so don't do that. Just go watch one of the weirdest movies of the last couple of How? years. How? <laughs> How? 
Uh, Viv. Oh, and uh, I'm online at Brock Wilbur and stuff. You can find me there. Viv, where can people find you online? Um, you can find me at Viv underscore Kane on Twitter um, or at themarysue.com every day. Um, so after you read The Man from the Train, um, I finally just read uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, by Michelle McNamara about the Golden State Killer. Um, it was, you know, she spent, a, a big portion of as her long life. As I did. Yeah. 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 Um, really making a lot of headway in, uh, in just figuring out who that guy was. And they, after her death a few years ago, like they did actually find the, the identity of the killer. And um, so it's, it's really heartbreaking that she never got to see that. But um, listening to, I, I, I actually uh, listened to the audiobook, which is a, it's a great, it's a great audiobook, and I highly recommend that. Um, just, yeah, great story. Uh, hard, hard to listen to or read at times. Um, but, yeah, really recommend that after you're done with Rachel's book. A very natural transition yeah. there. <laughs> Rachel, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me online at Twitter, R. McCarthy James. Um, and for my recommendation, I'm going to recommend another true crime book, uh, David Grand's Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which beat us for the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime last year, and deservedly so, because it's really a masterpiece. Um, it's about uh, a series of murders on um, Oklahoma reservations in the 1920s. Uh, kind of covers a lot of the same stuff as The Man from the Train. There's a lot of stuff that private detectives he really goes into, uh, mm -hmm. the corruption of that field. And he really uncovers this uh, immense injustice that's been perpetrated on many levels um, against Native Americans by the government and by the people who purported to love them the most. Uh, it's really, it's a stunning, stunning book. So oh, I would shit, recommend I that. I can't yeah. wait to read that. Killers of the Flower Moon by David Graham. So yeah, absolutely. I would never promote the work of anyone that ever beat me for anything. <laughs> so you are a better person than me. Like they beat us, but deservedly so. And you know what? <laughs> David Grand's a really good guy. Um, you know, he's uh, been a good mentor to some of my friends and they've passed on the favor to me. So I really, and it's such a good book. It's really, it's, it's really spectacular work. So I would definitely recommend that. Rachel, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for today. having me. Uh, this yeah. has been Missouri Loves Company. Please write reviews. Uh, click that smash that subscribe smash button it. smash it uh, and uh, leave us a comment uh, thank you guys so much for listening bye bye, bye. bye.